Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver, BC, Canada. Here, we'll aim to talk about what it means to faithfully follow Jesus in our post-Christian context, all with the aim of making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you'd like to know more about Christ City Church and get connected to a neighborhood church, you can email info at christcitychurch.ca. Well, welcome to this episode of Here Be Dragons. My name is Jake Lefebvre. I'm on the team here at Christ City Church, and I'm joined today by Dr. Quentin Jenis, uh, a doctor at St. Paul's in the ER uh, downtown, also a master of letters, which we'll get into in this episode. We'll tell you more about what that is because nobody knows. <laughs> uh, a father of three, yep. husband to one. Um, what else do I have here in your bio? Oh, published in journals of medicine, science, and bioethics. And if you're confused, and you're thinking, is he Dr. Genius? It's not Dr. Genius. It is Dr. Genius. And we're all disappointed that it's not Dr. Genius. Yes, I always I always say to my patients, it's Genis, it rhymes with tennis. Okay. It's originally, it's actually an old Maltese name. So my father's family's from Malta. Okay. It was originally Genuise, rhymes with fleece, not tennis. But my- It's uh, actually a rhyming episode. Yeah. We're actually talking <laughs> about rhyming all, words. Yeah. That's what master of letters means. <laughs> He's definitely good at rhyming. <laughs> Um, but yeah, my, my grandparents moved to Toronto from Malta after, shortly after the Second World War. And unfortunately, there was a lot of anti-Italian sentiment because yep. of the war. So they changed the pronunciation of their name from Genuise to Genis to seem less Italian. Okay. So we just let that go and now we're just Genis. Okay. But well, not genius, anything but genius. Anything but genius. Yeah. Well, before we get into uh, issues of bioethics, medical issues that you're going to talk about uh, over the next two episodes, hopefully, uh, Quentin, I want you to first talk about this course that you're actually teaching uh, in part with Kendra Gabrant, one of the staff members yeah. here at Christ City. Talk a bit about that course. When's it starting? What's it all about? And why should people sign up for it? Yeah, so this is something I'm very excited about. So we're going to have a Christ City course. And the focus of that is really to talk about uh, healthcare and the life of the church. So there's all kinds of issues in our society where the questions of healthcare, what it means to be human, what it means to suffer, what it means to die well, uh, what human life is, how we recognize life, how we are hospitable to life. These are questions that uh, are often seen as medical questions, mm -hmm. but these are really questions that all of us ask and answer in our own lives. And they're questions that the church has to speak to, yeah. uh, that the, the core of our faith answers questions about what does it mean to be a human being? Yeah. What does it mean to suffer? How do we live uh, with hope in the midst of suffering and death yeah. as a community? And so part of that takes uh, form in talking about specific issues like death and dying issues in our society, yeah. issues related to life and controversies around life in our society, but also hopefully takes the form of taking a step back together and talking about what does God say about what it means to be a human being? Yeah. What hope does the gospel provide for us together yep. when we suffer? And so the course uh, is to engage those issues together as the church. Yep. And uh, I think everybody yeah. <laughs> uh, can think of issues in their own lives that are relevant to these yeah. uh, kinds of questions. And so hopefully it will be enriching. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so just to clarify, this yeah. is not just a course for like nurses and doctors and people in, in the field. Anybody can come Correct. and can understand. Yes. Even someone like myself can understand what you're talking about and its relevancy for my life today. Yeah. And I think that's that's really the, the yeah. goal. Like I now unfortunately have some of these annoying letters after my name and some, some right. of these things. But I started doing this kind of thing, working at a kids, a Christian camp with teenagers, yeah. just sitting around with a bunch of uh, people who love Jesus talking about 
how do we love Jesus in the mm. communities where we live? How do we be? Uh, uh, how do we have a witness of being a community of hope and joy? Yeah in all seasons where we live. And we weren't, you know, writing academic papers or arguing about Greek phrasing and this and that. We were just talking about the Christian story and how we apply the Christian story to our lives. I love it. And so these questions of, of, of good dying and how do we recognize and be hospitable towards life? How do we affirm human dignity? Those are not academic questions purely. Those are questions for everyone. And the goal of the course is to enrich the church. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Accessible for everyone. Everyone's invited. Yes. Quentin will largely be teaching the course, but also be joined periodically uh, by Kendra Gerbrandt, uh, one of our staff members here to teach that. Yeah, We're and Kendra actually ticks, uh, is the hero of the course. So I tick the box of being a healthcare provider and having some additional training in sort of theology. Sure. Kendra ticks the box of healthcare provider, ticks the box of additional training in theology. Yep. She's also an excellent teacher and she has a lot of experience. She's a palliative care nurse for 10 years. So lots of my St. Paul's Emerge experience is like, you know, sure. the, the madness of, of the downtown east side. But Kendra has such a, a wealth and a depth of uh, experience as well. So, yeah, I'm really grateful that she'll be joining as well. Fantastic. Quinton, why don't uh, you help us out a bit, but tell us a bit of your story, how you came to Vancouver, how you came to be doing what you're doing, you know, doctor, bioethicist, uh, all that kind of stuff. Help us out. Yeah, sure. So I, my dad's a doctor. Uh, my dad is an obstetrician. My dad is a very lovely kind man and i grew up in a relatively small community a suburb of edmonton and lots of people i knew and my friends at school my dad delivered them and so i grew up in this environment where my dad had a great reputation he was mm -hmm. a, he's a lovely man and medicine was associated with this very sort of a happy kind of embarrassing sometimes maybe and you have siblings as well too Quinter? yeah i have four siblings okay. and two of them are doctors as well all, <laughs> so, all, ge all doctor geniuses no um no, but anyway, so I, um, yeah. no, no, that's yeah. not my name. I mean, the other, the other Emerson and Katrina are my siblings. They are geniuses, but not me. Uh, but anyway, so I graduated high school and it was my goal to go to medical school. And I went to this uh, relatively small uh, Christian university, King's University in Edmonton. And I found myself sort of taking, you have to take breadth courses as part of a liberal arts degree. So I found myself sitting in, you know, intro to philosophy class and intro to theology class. And at that time I saw myself as, more or less sort of a sciencey guy um, who's going to go to med school. And I just was seized. Like, I remember my mm. uh, one of my philosophy professors talking about Dostoevsky, who's now one of my favorite Russian novelist thinker guys. And I just like, I just... That's, that's a separate episode, by the way. Yeah, that's like, <laughs> Brothers K, yeah, yeah, yeah. all that kind of stuff. We just got to nerd out. That's actually a different podcast is what <laughs> totally. that is. Yeah. But I just remember sitting there like mesmerized and then neglecting my calculus homework because I just could not stop thinking about the Grand Inquisitor and uh, and... That's a chapter in the Dostoevsky book, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, so yeah, yeah. No, it's, happening. it's a different podcast. Yeah. It's yeah. a different podcast. And that's happening again now yeah. is I can't focus because I'm <laughs> yeah. just on the Dostoevsky thing. But I found myself really seized by a certain set of questions and a, uh, a new view on the power and the beauty of Christian truth mm. that is deeply compelling and satisfying. Um, and I sort of was continuing on this medical school track, but increasingly my course load was like less and less science and more and more theology. And then I for was fortunate enough to get into med school in Edmonton. And then I uh, was in my first year of med school and I was kind of bored and I was like, I don't care about the pancreas. And I was trying to sort of still scratch that itch. And I had a theology professor at um, at King's and he was a lovely guy and, and mentored me a little bit. And he was kind of like, you know, you can like find ways to still study theology and find ways to fit this in. 
And so I uh, found a, a master's of theology on the internet uh, at, uh, San, or, sorry, I went to St. Andrews, but I went on the internet. The University of Phoenix. Exactly. Is what it, was. It, was like, it was like a 15 minute yeah, certificate. Yeah, yeah. I now have uh, a master of letters <laughs> and that's what it means. Um, but anyways, I dug around on the internet. I found this one year master's of theology with sort of a focus. I could do some research in bioethics through the, through the University of St. Andrews, which is a very old, posh university in uh, Scotland. N.T. Wright was there when I was there, which was sort of a big, big pull of a sort of a big name uh, in the world of biblical studies. And I um, applied and I got in. And through a very random series of events, I won this uh, scholarship that was um, produced by this like golf foundation uh, who thought I was, is a, this is a very funny story on its own, but they uh, they had this scholarship for funding that was mostly for Americans, but in the fine print, you could also apply if you were Canadian. And mm. so I applied for the scholarship and I interview and they asked me all these questions, like they thought Canada was like Siberia. So I had this big interview for this fancy scholarship and they like asked me if it snows year round in Edmonton right. and if we had paved roads. And I right. think- And how, how the whale hunt had gone that yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. Right. So these, uh, these American uh, golf guys, I thought I was quite quaint and decided to fund my master's degree. So I ended up with a year off of med school, moving to Scotland uh, to do this master's degree. And it was an amazing experience. I have lots of, uh, lots of good stories and I loved uh, living in Scotland and acquired a taste for Scotch whiskey. And I did not learn to golf, although St. Andrews is the home of world mm -hmm. golf. Uh, but yeah, had a wonderful time there and really, uh, grew in that sort of thing that I was interested in, which was Christian theology, and with some of a focus of bringing together Christian truth with my particular practice these days, which is the practice of medicine, and making those things talk to each other, which they actually do quite naturally, but right. um, most obviously that occurs in the field of what we call ethics, uh, and that sort of has produced sort of a niche for me in the sort of um, ethicist kind of a... Um, kind of a role. Who, who are the forerunners who like you would look to who kind of straddle these two worlds like you do, Quentin, in terms of, like that people would know, like who are like existing like that bioethic world, but also in like the, you know, the medical doctor world and the theology world. And like, are there people that like, you know, you look to as you were studying, like, okay, I kind of want to do what they're doing, people that we might be familiar with or, or know of as like a reference point, or, or is this like a, a, a new, uh, is this a, a, a new profession that you've invented? Well, along, along the way? New. there certainly are you know, physician ethicists and physician theologians. A lot of the people who I really admire and look up to and want to be like, not all of them have formal training in theology or ethics. So one of them that is familiar to your podcast is Margaret Cottle. She's an absolute legend and she's a- Local Vancouverite. Local Vancouverite. She's a uh, physician who works in palliative care. She's incredibly, incredibly competent mm -hmm. at her practice of medicine. She's a, uh, has a beautiful Christian, person um, who knows, you know, the, the times to get fiery about stuff, but yeah. also how to be gentle and uh, kind and people like that, not all of them who had formal training, but who carefully thought through what their Christian faith meant uh, for their work and tried to make those things talk to each other. So in my life, I can't think of any sort of really well-known, there's lots of theologians who have influenced me. There's lots of doctors who have influenced me, but I can't think of anyone who I know who like has formal training in both. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm not, there's lots of people who have done it, I think. And so how did you make your way then from St. Andrews? So Edmonton, yeah, St. Andrews, St. Andrews. And, then, and then Vancouver. Yeah, and then back to Edmonton for a little bit, and then Victoria, and then Vancouver. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So I did um, 
uh, I went back to Edmonton to finish med school after St. Andrews, and then I went to Victoria for a residency for two years, and then I came to Vancouver here and was a resident in emergency medicine for one further year, and then I graduated, finally finished all the medical stuff, wrote my exams about a year and a half ago. And then I've been an Emerge Shock at St. Paul's and a little bit of Lionsgate since then. Can you talk a bit about your work at St. Paul's? I know being an Emerge Doc in a hospital that largely serves the downtown east side mm-hmm. is a is an experience. Yeah. What has that experience been like? Um, things t- you know learned along the way. Um, you know whatever you want to share on that. Yeah, I I love St. Paul's. I say that to everyone and. I love working at St. Paul's emergency department. It is absolute chaos and madness a lot of the time. That's certainly part of the skill of being... For, for, those, for those not familiar with sort of like the neighborhood that St. Paul's oh, yeah. is, is around, just like really quickly, briefly kind of like describe sort of socioeconomic sort of realities of that area. Right. So with the downtown east side, we see a lot of substance related issues. So overdoses and withdrawal and uh, all of the things that substance use puts people at risk for. We see a lot of mental health. We certainly see a lot of um, things that are produced from sort of social determinants of health, homelessness and those kinds of things. Um, and yeah, we see a lot of people whose whose lives have been tragic um, mm-hmm. on multiple areas, uh, have been victims of, of injustice and abuse and those kinds of things, and just tragedy uh, layered on tragedy. But we also see the dignity and the beauty and the resilience of those people. And I have learned time and time again that uh, when you take the time to, to look at those people, to treat them like human beings and to care for them, um, they are so much holier than me. Mm. And um, if we want to know um, who, where Jesus would be if he lived in Vancouver, spending time with people who live in the downtown east side, um, there there should be no glossing over the, the tragedy and the sorrow and the, the risk. Um, the overdose deaths from opiates is one easy thing to point to. It's just a, um, something that is unspeakably tragic in that community. Um, but also there is such beauty and dignity and generosity that exists in that community and it's an honor for me to work um with those patients it is chaotic <laughs> for sure even sure. I, I worked last night and i just i don't eat or or lie down or pee or anything for right. eight hours you just run around and put out fires and uh but i love it it's certainly a good fit for me yeah. so yeah so, i mean i i think about sort of you know what's going on, on the downtown east side and to sim- just drive you know down hastings yeah some of those neighborhoods it can be quite overwhelming yeah and i imagine the feeling can be similar at the hospital at times yeah I've, how do you persist in environments that can feel overwhelming like saint paul's like like how do you keep on going like what have you found even just as christians in the city of vancouver yeah how should we think about what feels like like sort of an overwhelming situation yeah yeah um i'm not very wise so when i hear questions like this i like to quote other people who are who are known to be wise so it's a good trick yeah um i have two mother Teresa quotes sort of to reflect on that uh the first one mother Teresa said if you can't feed a hungry people if you sorry i can't even say the quote if you cannot feed a hundred hungry people feed one and i think that Sometimes it is so easy, and especially in a in a world of social media and easy access to mm. all kinds of information, to feel like we are drowning and seeing the suffering in the world and seeing the suffering in our own city. And like you say, all you have to do to is go to Hastings and Maine to see and to begin to understand all kinds of problems that are bigger than any one person. But sometimes it helps not to feel overwhelmed by the whole tidal wave of suffering yeah. and to 
speak to the guy on the corner who's asking for change and to ask him his name and to ask if there's any way you can help him and to be kind and to affirm his dignity as a human creature who's uh, born in the image of God. Um, and so that's the first thing for me is to, um, I can't feed a hundred hungry people. I'm one person, but I can feed one. And, and that one person is the one patient who's in front of me in each encounter. And and the honest answer is that I commit sins of omission every day. And I see people who I could do more for and and I should do more for. And sometimes I don't. Um, but part of the part of the hope of our faith tradition is that just, you know, keep trying and there's there's always someone else. There's always the next patient and sure. um try to do everything I can to affirm people's dignity and to treat them with respect. My second Mother Teresa quote, um, sort of dovetails nicely with that. And uh, one time someone asked Mother Teresa sort of what motivates her to engage with her care of people who are very vulnerable uh, in their own way. And she said, what motivates us is pity mingled with respect mm. um, or compassion mingled with respect. And I really find that a very morally powerful notion. I work with tons of you know emergency physicians and addictions physicians and nurses and social workers and community support workers and all kinds of people who work in the downtown east side. And uh, you only have to, you know, read all email threads associated with these people um, and these my colleagues to know that everybody says that they're burnt out. And the the language of compassion, fatigue, and burnout and struggling um, from engaging with uh, suffering and being present to people who suffer profoundly on a day to day basis does wear on people and does produce feelings of depersonalization and being jaded and those kinds of things. And I really believe that part of the answer to those feelings is is this compassion mingled with respect that over time it is not enough to feel sorry for people who suffer it is not enough to empathize with them um the way to sustain a life of compassion is to learn to respect mm. to love and even to revere human beings for being human beings and i've been very moved in this past year by um by a, an understanding of a proper Christian humanism. And humanism is a, can be a loaded term and people in our time can associate it with sort of aggressive secularism that's anti-Christian. But right. humanism was initially a movement that was started by Christians. Um, and I have been moved by the call of our faith um, to look at one another and to um, understand what a amazing thing it is to be a human being, what a gift it is to be a human person with the image of God, and to revere other human beings for being human beings. Mm -hmm. And for me in my practice of medicine and engaging with, uh, you know, layers of tragedy on tragedy with respect to the downtown east side, that is certainly very sustaining for people, or it's very sustaining for me, is when I look at patients, not to sort of slip into this only pity or only empathy right. mode that in a certain sense can distance me from them, right. um, but to uh, find ways to practice reverence and respect for yeah. them. So Quentin, before we get into the weeds of sort of like all those issues in the course and kind of get into all those sort of nuanced and complex situations, I want us to, in our time together today, kind of zoom out a bit. And I think you'll be really helpful here as a doctor and a bioethicist to kind of help us ask like the fundamental questions. And so the first question that we had talked about, you know, discussing here is the question of ethics. Mm -hmm. So when I hear ethics, I hear like a fancy way of saying 
what I'm supposed to do with my life, like how I actually behave and, and act. Like, what are we talking about? Maybe fundamentally when we're talking about ethics, what are we talking about? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And I think people sometimes can think of ethics as a very esoteric academic kind of discipline that's for philosophy professors or undergraduates right. who are drinking IPAs and smoking menthols or something like <laughs> right, that. Right, right. But <laughs> it's a very, it's a very detailed, <laughs> specific but also accurate description. Yeah. Um, classically, ethics is described uh, as the project of human beings moving from human beings as we are to human beings as we could or should be, or communities as we find them to communities as sure. they should or could be. And so often people uh, now can think of ethics as sort of about these very granular specific issues. But everybody looking at ourselves, I recognize there's something called Quentin as he is. And if I use my imagination even a little bit, I can imagine something called Quentin as he should be right. um, of a, a Quentin who engages better uh, with the world. Um, and ethics is the holistic project, the, the art of asking, what are human beings for? What is the good life? And how do we move ourselves from the place where we find ourselves to that good life? And so as Christians, like what's unique about the project of Christian ethics then? Yeah, and I think that's an excellent question. I think the, the most basic answer to that question is that in... Christianity, the good and the beautiful and the true all find unity in God. Right. Like all of those things are uh, lenses, so to speak, that, that find their unity in God. And so when we ask what is good for the Christian, we start by looking outside of ourselves. And that obviously is a very countercultural message that when for a Christian we talk about, let's say, the ethics of generosity, what does it mean to be generous? How do we be generous? We don't start by looking inwards and saying, what does it look like when I'm generous? Right. We look at God and we say the, the God who is rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. And the starting point of talking about what it means to be good or generous or what it means to be hospitable mm. uh, or what it means to welcome and affirm the dignity of human life. The starting point for that is talking about God. And then under that category, part of asking, part of the project of ethics, as I've described it, is a question of what is a human being? So right. if we, if the key question of what is the good life for people includes the question of what is a human person? What is it that makes us unique? What are the things that is good for us as creatures? For a Christian, the beginning of the answer to that question is who is Jesus Christ? Who was and is the true human being mm. who lived the perfect human life? Mm -hmm. And so when we want to know what love is or what it calls us to in the world or how we respond to someone in our midst who is suffering profoundly, we start by looking at Jesus. And there are, in the beautiful witness of the Gospels, very concrete answers to those questions, I think. Yeah. So I guess what I'm wondering is, why is it important, in your understanding, that we step back? Like, what, what's right. an example of Christians sort of rushing headlong into these bioethical issues? Whatever it is, medical assistance in dying, abortion, euthanasia, all these kinds of you know, hot-button topics. Yeah. Uh, without getting to those specifics, why is it important that we step back and ask, like, okay, what are some fundamental questions about what we, what we believe about the person? Like, like, what happens when we don't do that, I guess, is a better way to phrase that question. Yeah, 
I think there is a fundamental human temptation here. Like I'm, I'm, I always tell the story of Thomas Aquinas, who as you know, is a great theologian in the Christian tradition. And he wrote this huge, long thousands of uh, pages text called the Summa Theologica that had multiple sections. And the first section of his text was sort of the doctrine of God section. Who is God? What is the Trinity? Who is Jesus? And the, the second section was the ethics section. Mm. And he, in his life with the people who he sort of wrote his book for, he, there, he had a rule for them. You're not allowed to read section number two until you read section number one, that the ethical questions of the world can seem so pressing that you might want to jump right to the, you know, the, con the social controversies of the time. But you can't do that properly unless you're grounded in the story of mm. who God is. Otherwise, you'll become just like everybody else. You'll be another think tank or social movement that's competing and scratching and clawing for power with other competing social movements who who want increased power and influence. Right. And the thing that saves you from that is having the the humility and the groundedness that you are someone who is who is living in God's story. And it's so funny that we have some evidence that even in Thomas's own lifetime, there was tons of monasteries in Europe that had transcribed and stocked the second volume of, of his work, the ethics right, part, the ethics. without the first one. So yeah. people then were just like people now. They see pressing issues and they want to say, let's get right to it. And so I think with an issue like abortion, for example, if Christians see there being a, a really a significant tragedy ongoing in our society, they understandably say, we need to get, you know, we might not have time to talk about all the background stuff. We just need to right. engage. And I think that there is real wisdom to taking a step back and asking, what is human life? Hmm. Why is it a Christian virtue to be hospitable and welcoming to human life? How can we be attentive to vulnerable people of all types? And certainly unborn children are, are profoundly vulnerable. But how can we be attentive to single mothers and refugees, you know, and to mm -hmm. have a holistic view of what it means to engage a Christian virtue of hospitality. And I, yeah, I think sometimes we can succumb to the temptation of wanting to rush headlong into the issues mm -hmm. and uh, that can impair our witness uh, as people who are um, patient and yeah. gentle um, and who have an, an eye towards all vulnerable people, not just one particular and I'm trying to yeah. think, though, even as you talk, Quentin, about wanting to like rush in and and you know have a have a stance, have a position, mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily that being wrong in and of itself, mm -hmm. but the need of stepping back and kind of having this this broader framework yeah. of understanding. I'm trying to think like where the forum is for that long belabored discussion because it's it's not on social media, yeah. <laughs> right? It's 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 not on. It's nowhere that, that I know of. Yeah. And so why is it important, I guess, to have this conversation in the church? And why must the church be a forum for these sort of larger conversations? Because it doesn't exist, to my knowledge, like in many places, at least in popular sort of broader culture. Yeah, I think that you're totally right that it, the way that ethics has become uh, discussed in our society, the conversation has inevitably come become very shrill um, and very sort of pragmatic where people aren't interested in uh, broader narratives of of truth or beauty or goodness right. um, but want to jump very quickly to sort of ground level issues and then to sort of activism around those issues and there is there is reason for that in the history of philosophy and so you'll be familiar with Nietzsche Nietzsche was a you know 19th century German philosopher and he quite uh, famously said this idea that 
anybody who appeals to truth is actually just asserting a kind of power. So anybody who makes an argument about what is ultimately good or ultimately true or ultimately good for you is just exerting a kind of a will to power over you. And not just Nietzsche, but certainly he's well known for it, injected a kind of suspicion into cultural, philo philosophical, and ethical conversations that says, whenever someone talks, makes high, fancy-sounding arguments about the good or about what you should do in terms of your long-term wellness, mm. they sh you should be very suspicious of that person because what they are really asserting is some kind of a power over you. And I think you can see that all the time, and that, and that plays out in all kinds of ways in our uh, yeah. cultural conversations. But bioethical issues are one easy example where people jump to the sort of uh, end-level issues and want to sort of have the uh, debates there because there is the suspicion that anyone who takes some time and sort of takes a careful step back and appeals to higher notions of the good, that those kind of conversations in themselves um, are not neutral, are exertions right. of certain kind of um, power. And in that sense, it's not surprising uh, that the church might be a unique place where people can come together in a place of mutual trust and mutual humility and respecting a mutual common authority, uh, the authority of our, our text and our tradition. Um, and be able to wrestle through the meat of these issues mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. and to disagree. Yeah. And to disagree well mm -hmm. and to disagree patiently yeah. and to disagree in hope and faith. Yeah. So, so Christian listening right now, yeah. uh, you've clicked on this podcast because you want to know Quentin's hot take on abortion <laughs> or maid, medical assistance and dying yeah. uh, or whatever the topic is. And what we're saying, what you're saying is hold on a second, pump the brakes. It's actually one of the unique God-given you know, abilities that we have to forbear with one another yeah. in terms of having a nuanced excuse me, and careful conversation about these things. And so we're going to step back, at least in this episode, yeah. I want us to ask like fundamental bioethical questions. And so if you were to say the first question we should, we should ask in this endeavor to understand how we should respond to these very real issues in our day and age, it's not to minimize them. Yeah. Very real issues in our day and age. What is sort of the fundamental bioethical question that you'd want to ask and that we need to kind of explore? Uh, it, would it be like, what is a, a person? I would say that's probably the most basic question that I think is uh, important to ask and answer. What does it mean to be a human being? Right. And attendant to that question is the reality that one universe, almost universal feature of human life is the reality of suffering and dying. Um, and human beings have all kinds of unique features within creation. Yeah. Um, suffering and dying not being one of those. Um, but one of the things um, that is important to ask is we are creatures who have minds, who are conscious of suffering. We don't just experience pain, but we but we suffer. We, we suffer existential um, suffering. And what does it mean to find hope and joy in the midst of those universal experiences? And yeah, I think those are beginnings of really important questions yeah. to um, doing bioethics well. Yeah, I mean, we, we, so we've talked so far a bit about ethics mm -hmm. and about Christian ethics. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess maybe it's worth going back a little bit in history yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, because I, I think historically it's important to note that not everybody throughout history has thought the same about human beings. Mm -hmm. 
And so I know you're not a historian by, by trade, but just kind of, if you can speak to the timeline, a bit of sort of like, you know, at some point Christians started taking babies off of garbage dump piles yeah. when they were being sort of, you know, tossed out in, in, in the Roman world. Um, you know, at, at some, so, I mean, Christians have a long and story tradition of sort of influencing in a positive way, by and large, like the bioethical conversation. Yeah. Can you speak a bit in terms of like how Christianity functions as a sort of revolutionary motor, as it were, in the bioethical world? Yeah, and I think that's that's a very poignant reflection. And I think there's uh, plenty of sort of evidence historically that one of the reasons that Christianity uh, just exploded in the world of the ancient Roman Empire was the practice of Christians with respect to profoundly vulnerable people. Right. And, you know, the ancient classical societies, the Greeks and the Romans, did not believe in universal human rights or universal human dignity. Um, even the sort of Greeks who are credited for the invention of democracy, it was still only a very small um, collection of landowning prominent male citizens who were allowed to vote. It was nothing right. like sort of modern uh, liberal Western democracy. And so these ideas that we take for granted as contemporary people did not exist then. And people who were widows or newborn children or elderly people or people of certain ethnic or cultural backgrounds were almost universally seen as not to matter and not to be of importance. And one of the amazing revolutionary thing about the early Christian church is the consistent assertion stubbornly um, that uh, human beings, all human beings are made in the image of God and and therefore matter profoundly. Mm. And this subversion is written, I mean, even as early as the Gospels. Like one of my favorite things about uh, the Gospels is that they, um, I forget which one, you could, you probably know this better than me, but, but places the earliest witness of the resurrection as women. And even in Jewish society and Jewish law, yeah, yeah. Um, would have seen women as un unreliable witnesses and, and that not being a valid witness for the most important historical event in all of history. And if anyone was writing, a, making up a gospel, trying to say, we're gonna prove the right. resurrection happened, they would not have told the story telling women as the first witnesses. Right. But there is this early sort of subversion right there that these are the most reliable witnesses who were there, who saw it, who we believe. And as you say, you know, as early as the second and third centuries, the Romans saw these Christians and the Romans had these practices of if they had unwanted babies, especially if they were girls, of, you know, leaving them at the garbage dump, uh, mm -hmm. exposing them in a variety of ways um, to death. And the Romans began noticing these, these Christian people right. um, sneaking out and picking up these babies and taking them home. And there was this period where no one knew why. Um, and even sort of, there's these Roman sort of letters about uh, widows and other destitute people on the streets. and those people sort of disappearing and sort of re-emerging as part of the Christian community. And there was this uh, kind of confusion. And even over time, like one of the mitigating factors of Roman persecution of Christians was the fact that Christians over time became sort of a welfare system. And there's some letters between Roman officials in different cities saying, we want to persecute the Christians, but we kind of can't right. anymore because the structure of our cities is being held up by Christians who are supporting the poor and, you know, these kinds of things that are keeping some of the sort of social network of these cities together. Yeah. And so that is a very long-winded way of answering yeah. the question to say that the early Christian church had a uh, profound witness of the virtue of hospitality. And that included hospitality towards unborn children and hospitality towards newly born children 
and also included hospitality towards uh, refugees and widows mm -hmm. and single parents um, and elderly, vulnerable people. Um, their society very explicitly did not believe that those people's lives mattered. And the church was a patient place that stubbornly assisted, insisted that if you are a human being, you are made in the image of God. And so we will respect you. Yeah. Um, and even that word revere, which, which I'm sympathetic towards, we will even revere you, not because you are God right. or because you are holy in yourself, right. but because God became incarnate for you. Right. So Christianity uh, in many ways lays the foundation for what we would talk about, like good bioethics, yeah. much of the human rights that we yeah. assume these days, yeah. Judeo-Christian sort of tradition. Yeah, totally. Um, so what happens then? When, when you talk about being in a post-Christian world. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was listening to the historian Tom Holland mm. talk the other day about, um, there's this clip on you know Twitter or something, and he was talking about, listen, if you're going to believe in human rights, like why not believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Right. Because he, he's saying like, like you're making a faith assertion that like, like you said, like that people are made in the image of God, that they're made to be re revered, not just like, okay, you know, there's some sort of evolutionary advantage to me being kind to you. Um, and, and so he made that connection that like that the human rights, as we think about them, is profoundly Christian. Mm -hmm. um, so what happens, Quentin? What happens in your world? What happens in your day? What do your conversations look like? Like what sort of presuppositions do people come to these, you know, kind of questions with unknowingly, like without recognizing the fact that they're deeply, you know, formed and shaped by the Christian scriptures and tradition? Yeah, and I think you're you're totally right that a lot of the things that are unconsciously believed about human value and human rights um, are things that are uh, dependent on the fact that our civilization was rooted in Christian thought and Christian philosophy, the notion of human rights, the notion of justice, the notion right. of personhood, uh, and those kinds of things are all um, are all in invented because of Christian thought and because of Christian history. And as a society begins to uh, move away from th those um, ideals, uh, it becomes a very interesting question of, of what comes in to replace them. Yeah. And I think that um, you see some of those sort of uh, ancient pagan virtues and practices reemerging. And I think one example of that when it uh, comes to ethics more broadly is the example of humility. So if you read the you know great works of, of Roman uh, ethicists or um, Arist Aristotle or those kinds of things, most of those people saw humility as a vice. Uh, being proud was a virtue. Um, Right. Putting yourself first, uh, asserting your own was was what uh, good, upstanding people did, and only you know people who c didn't have any influence were humble, and being humble was bad. And then Christianity invented this virtue called humility because of who Jesus was, and the you know created this uh, or, or yeah created this system of philosophy and human thought around the the virtues of what it means to be humble and gentle. Mm. Um, Jesus says, "Blessed are the meek." Um, but now, um, in, in the way we do ethics more broadly, we see that, you know, increasingly virtues like the virtue of, you know, patient humility is being lost in, in cultural conversations. The people who we choose as leaders or seen as celebrities in our societies or those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, but the same thing is true when we come to all kinds of ground level bioethics issues. So I think death and dying as an easy example, um, in pre-Christian, you know, classic societies, for people to will their own death, 
um, as a response to pain or suffering or embarrassment uh, or those kinds of things was seen as a very potentially logical and rational kind of thing. And the Jews, uh, in terms of pre-Christian history, were a notable exception to that because the Jews were people who believed that their lives belonged to God and their lives did not belong to themselves, but their lives belonged to someone else. Mm. And then along came Christians who agreed with the Jews on that front, but reasserted an even stronger um, prohibition against willing your own death because the Christian tradition was founded by Jesus, who was this person who died in a very particular kind of way, mm -hmm. who wept in a garden one night, knowing that he was facing his death and grieved in anguish over that reality, but said, Take this cup for me, or, sorry, I can't. <laughs> who said, not my will, but yours. Yeah. Um, and who died in a certain kind of a way and who produced certain kinds of goods in the world through suffering and dying in patient, stubborn submission uh, to the will of the Father. Mm -hmm. And the church then in history reasserted this, this good that although we do not like suffering, and we clearly assert suffering and dying as enemies. Mm -hmm. Our lives are things that do not belong to us, and to will our own death in one form or another through a doctor's intervention or not um, is not uh, the way that Christians will die. And the power of that moral philosophy shaped the history of the West and sort of broad strokes um, belief that suicide was not a good thing. And again, that's not to condemn people who commit suicide for all kinds of reasons or to say anything about their salvation or anything, but to say that as a question of ethics, to will your own death is not the ideal situation, is not the ethical thing, was universally accepted. But then zoning back in on bioethics in our time, you inevitably see those pre-Christian practices creeping in again in mm -hmm. a post-Christian context. And of course, it takes slightly different forms, and people now call it made, and it's delivered through the vehicle of doctors who are seen as being, you know, having a certain kind of cachet that um, that might make it appear yeah. differently. But fundamentally, it's the same question. Um, so I, I wanted to pick yeah. up on what you just said there, because I think there's a question here of, of who's functioning in sort of a priestly role in our yeah. society. And so, Quentin, you're a doctor, you're also a, a theologian, and like you said before, you have letters, right? And I have little letters, um, you know, uh, two letters. Um, and then it's not an M or a D beside it. And so, like, how do we think about in terms of authorities uh, in our life who, who speak sort of and everyone kind of listens? Now, I'm not sure if that's happening altogether anymore just because of the noise. But, but there are certainly people in professions who function in these priestly roles. Mm -hmm. How do you, as a doctor recognize the influence you have mm -hmm. and kind of hold that influence in proportion uh, to sort of the authoritative text of scripture, like even as a follower of Jesus, mm -hmm. like, like, like how, how do you speak and, and use that authority? I, I guess if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's a very, um, it's a very important question. I, I really, want you to answer. These are great because each question I get is like, that's a good question. So oh, yeah. I, like, I really appreciate yeah, yeah, you, no you pumping my tires here. Um, yeah, although it was unclear entirely, that's a very important <laughs> question. I think that the history of doctors being seen in a priestly role is an interesting one. Some of that starts with the French Revolution, that you had this explicit movement that explicitly wanted to uh, get rid of the priests and then had enough sense to look around and say like, oh, but 
like priestly roles are important. And yeah. there's actually some writings around the French Revolution where people are proposing different potential, like maybe they could be kind of the new priests. And there's some that sort of identify doctors and say, well, people, doctors are, you know, have a lot of cachet culturally. People seem right. to respect them. Um, certainly in their time, maybe similar to ours in pandemic days, doctors were recognized as people who took certain kinds of risks uh, on behalf of others. And certainly that's a trust building practice. Um, and so there was this sort of explicit, like maybe doctors can fill the role that priests filled. Mm. As a Christian, I see that as a very psychologically shallow analysis. And in my uh, personal view of what healthy, most ethical medicine looks like, doctors would not seek to expand their influence beyond their medical expertise. And I think one of the reasons in our time why people are often suspicious of expertise is that Nietzschean suspicion that we talked about before, mm. that they, they, they don't see people as asserting narrow objective expertise. They see them as sort of creeping, and, and that's this, this language in medicine of paternalism, which is a very buzz phrase in, in bioethics of doctors not being paternalists. People have become increasingly suspicious of medical paternalism. What, what, do, you, what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, so paternalism is like a, a word that uh, most literally means sort of parent-likeness or father-likeness. But in the bioethics conversation, there are these two uh, concepts, autonomy and paternalism, that are seen as sort of counterpoints. And so autonomy is that I can determine my own sort of health outcomes for myself, I can make decisions for myself, and the sort of set up alternative to that is the physician tells you what's right for you and what you should do. Like you should get a vaccine or you should not get a vaccine. Right, exactly. Just 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 to mention something and right, you know passing. Exactly. And I'm the expert and and you should just listen to me. And it's right. doctor's orders. And there is appropriately a suspicion of that uh, and a pushback against that in the autonomy movement. And I've actually written about this quite a bit. Um, some of that pushback is appropriate because a, a doctor is is not a priest. Doctors do not have you know, significant training in uh, counseling or spiritual care or those right. kinds of things. And if and when we try to set ourselves up as experts in that way, people are right to be suspicious and are right to distrust physicians. And so in that sense, I think that healthy medicine and sort of healthy practice as a physician takes a humble approach, recognizes the things that I am an, uh, I am an expert in and the many, 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 many things that I am not an expert in. Mm -hmm. And sometimes some of those priestly roles arise naturally. And so certainly sometimes, you know, in the emergency department, if I have a patient who is profoundly um, afraid or struggling with, mm -hmm. um, with a new diagnosis or something like that, of course I will sit with them and hold their hand and um, comfort them. And um, I'm not a big crier, but cry with them, you know, right. um, at times. And those are not formally, you know, part of the medical expert role, but yeah. are things that naturally arise out of the one-to-one -one relationship sometime. And those are good things. So if I can interject yeah. there, Quentin. So if, if I think about our culture and think about what our culture likes, yeah, uh, we like health yeah, and well. So I can be more specific, what Vancouver likes. Yeah. Right? Do you live in Kitsilano? That's right. I used to live in Kitsilano. Okay. Right? Yeah. You used to live in Kitsilano. Yeah. So you know, like, you know, we like to jog and yeah. bike yeah. and drink vegetables. Yeah. And and so these are these sort of like, you know, our billionaires are inventing ways that we can live forever or yeah. go to the moon and live forever on the moon. Um, and so as a doctor, you, you kind of, you know, like there there's a real sort of cultural zeitgeist, yeah. a spirit that kind of leads to you, as it were. Yeah. Like, is there anything that you can do as a doctor that's, that fights against that spirit of the age? I would say I can probably do more to combat that idol, so to speak, in my hat as an aspiring theologian than I can with my hat as a doctor. Okay. Um, 
because and Stanley Hauerwas, who's an amazing theologian who I love, who you will know, mm-hmm. says that medicine is the counter salvation promising group in our society, which is a bit of a mouthful. Can you say I'll say that, that again. again. Yeah. Medicine is the counter salvation promising group in our society. Sometimes what he's saying, I think, is that medicine colludes with our idolatrous will to live forever. And oh. so the the billionaires who want to live forever on the moon and want to, you know, try this therapy and this therapy, sure. medicine and medical technology sometimes is the colludes with distracting people from the reality that that they are going to die right. inevitably and pursuing all kinds of different ways to try to prolong uh life however we can. And in that sense we a hundred percent collude with the I want to live forever, I never want to die. Yeah, um, idolatry that will inevitably be present outside of a story like the Christian story or a similar religious story. Right. So how do we then, because I think there's one way we could swing on the pendulum here where we yeah, say, yeah. we're all going to die. Yeah. And so our bodies don't matter. Right. So 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 how do we sort of, if you could begin, Quentin, to paint that Christian vision yeah. of the body, of of bioethics that kind of splits the difference that says yeah, yeah. like we're not infinite we're, we're, we're finite yeah and and yet we're for these finite creatures like bearing the image of god yeah um and these bodies that we have are, are not bad things we're not gnostics yeah like these are these are good things in fact god created he, yeah. he looked at all he saw he made and it was good yeah like how do we how do we begin to paint that vision totally and i think that's such an important point i think that one thing that's almost always true with an idol is most of the time idols are things that are good when Mm. they're placed in their proper place. And part of the tradition of Christian ethics is the idea of the ordering of loves. And so oftentimes when people do things that are wrong or are self-destructive, they are groping after something that is good. They Mm. just have misordered the loves in their life uh, away from the highest love, which is the love of what and who God is. And so the good of health is a great good. Right. Pain and suffering and infirmity in the bodies are not things that we celebrate. They are incredibly difficult and tragic. Right. Um, to be embodied creatures who can smell flowers and play in the snow mm-hmm. um, and can look at the stars is an amazing thing. And again, I feel so strongly that we should be filled with uh, awe of what it is to have the gift of being a human being. Mm. Um, one of my favorite stories of sort of death and dying is a, a nun whose last word- What a sentence, eh? Hey? Yeah. One of my favorite stories of death <laughs> yeah. and dying. I have I have many, <laughs> but this is one yeah. of my favorites. Um, but someone told me the story of a nun who her, her dying words were in prayer, thank you for allowing me to be a human being. Um, mm. And I want to be the kind of person who at the end is thankful in that way. Um, who recognizes that we are at the end of the day, dust and ashes. And our hope is not a hope in this world, but a hope of resurrected life and new creation. At the same time though, are richly grateful for what it is to be embodied, Mm -hmm. who steward our created bodies and who embrace health um, and seek health in ways that are responsible and proportional and appropriate. Mm -hmm. Not spending billions of dollars going to the moon when there are starving people in the world, but 
occasionally drinking a smoothie, I guess, and maybe jogging sure. and gross stuff like that. Sure, <laughs> yeah. sure. So I, I think next episode, we want to really zero in on death, dying, suffering, yeah. just have a real cheerful episode exactly, yeah. surrounding those sorts of things. If you were to say, hey, we're, we're, this episode, we're kind of laying the foundation of, of what it you know means to ask questions, ethical questions around what it means to be a person. Yeah. Like, what are the things that have not been said? Like that should be said that that's really important as we think about introducing both this course but also perhaps more you know, fundamentally like what it means that person to be a person yeah i think that the um the one other thing i i have mentioned but i would i would want to emphasize as uh, strongly is this idea of the image of god that when we ask what does it mean for a, a human being to be a person what does it mean to respect each other? Um, and what does it mean to be part of a community where all of us as individuals will suffer and will die, but we are part of an institution, the church, which will go on. Um, part of the core of all of those things when you look at the individual is affirming and reflecting on what it means that we are creatures who are made in the image of God. And there are certainly various ways of sort of digging into what that means. Right. I think relationality is, a, is certainly a, a strong part of that. Uh, what it means to have a mind um, is certainly a, a significant part of that. Um, but any narrative of bioethics from a Christian point of view asks the question, uh, what is the good? What does it mean to be a human being? Um, and, and answering that question by what is it, of what does it mean to be a human being by appealing to the created order, as in, what does it mean that we have the image of God? And then appealing to the incarnation. The true human being was Jesus Christ. The good life was lived in Jesus Christ. If we want to know what generosity or good dying or hospitality looks like, we don't have to look around uh, for other sources. We have a concrete historical example of what that looks like in a particular life. And so that was rambly. <laughs> no, it's good. Yeah, yeah, it's It's a great place to, to kind of close, I think. Quentin, thanks so much for joining us this first of uh, a two-part yes. uh, podcast that we're doing uh, surrounding bioethics, uh, the good life, all that kind of stuff. Next time, yep. death, dying, suffering. I uh, look forward to digging into yeah, that with you. I'm excited about it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of our Here Be Dragons podcast. If you'd like to listen to other episodes, you can find them on Spotify or iTunes. You can also find sermons from various Christ City neighborhood churches on our website. See you next time.